It is about the forgiveness of sin. It is in his words right there on the cross that it is for the forgiveness of sin. So the intent of the cross and what Jesus is sent to the cross to, his willingness to die on the cross was for the forgiveness of sin. And he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And in that same passage we talked about last week, there was two criminals. And one of those criminals, there was his answer to that prayer. Where seemingly at some point a conversion took place. The Holy Spirit changed him and transformed him. Where he saw his, his, his sin and he confessed his sin and he trusted in Jesus Christ as his only hope of salvation. It was in Christ alone for his only assurance. And in him did he believe that son or that, that particular day. And that Jesus is the only one that could forgive him. And Jesus is the only one that could remember him in time of judgment. But Jesus said to that criminal who was dying on the cross as he was dying, he said that I will not only remember you, but you will be with me today in paradise. See, forgiveness is not not only the removal of sin and guilt, but it ensures our new position before God, our union with Christ, that I am his and he is mine. However, I want to start off this morning by asking a question. I want to ask a question about the passage last week. And that question is, how could Jesus, how can Jesus say such a thing to a criminal? How could Jesus forgive him? How could Jesus forgive him and then that day promise him paradise? How could he do that? If there was a man in our community, in our county, that was arrested here in our county for murder, there's evidence that he's clearly guilty. He committed this particular crime. The evidence is there. The DNA is there. All the facts line up. All the timelines line up. He confesses his admission of guilt that he committed murder. There's not one of us in this room, there's not one of us in this county that would not expect the judge presiding over the case to sentence the man accordingly. That if he is guilty, we want him sentenced accordingly because that's what is just. Whether that be a life sentence, whether that be a death penalty, there must be justice. But what would happen if the judge said to the man who is guilty, innocent, let him go. Well, what would happen? There would be anger. There would be outrage. The Statesboro Herald would print the picture of that judge on the front page. It would be everywhere. There would be almost riots in the streets because of such injustice that we just observed. If that's the way we feel then about that, how then does Jesus look at a criminal and say, you're innocent and you're coming to me with me to paradise? How does he do that? How does he, how does he do that according to justice, according to what is right, according to the righteousness of God? 
How can he say to this admittedly guilty, deserving of the just wrath of God to this criminal, today you will be with me in paradise? Well, for that matter, getting a little closer to home, how could Jesus justly say to any one of us, to any one of us who have willfully disobeyed and broke God's law, who have sinned against him, how in the world does a holy, just, and right God say to you or to I that you are forgiven of all your sin? And then call you sons. And then call you saints. How could a holy, righteous judge say that? And for that matter, how could we even have assurance then? How could we have assurance that we have been forgiven at all? Spurgeon asked the same questions. Charles Spurgeon asked the same question. He said, if God continually forgives sin without taking any care of his moral government, if there be nothing done for vindication of his justice, how shall the judge of the earth do anything right? How was salvation for a criminal And salvation for sinners like us, like you, like me, like anyone accomplished. How could we be declared just or right? How is the wrath of God vindicated? How is his holy justice served out? The answer is at the cross. At the cross of Christ, where he bled and he died, where Jesus was not only crucified, but he faced the righteous judgment of God towards sin. And where he alone absorbed the wrath of God for sins and for his people, for the sins of his people. And that is how the criminal was justified that day. That is how any of us as sinners have been justified is at the cross. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So we're speaking righteousness, right? The right justness of God. The justice of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in that same place, that same spot of the criminal. We we do not deserve his grace. We do not deserve his mercy. We do not deserve heaven or, or paradise. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the law of God tells us this daily. That you have fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, verse 24, fallen short of the glory of God and are justified. We are now made right by what? By his grace. As a gift. But how is that grace and how is that gift accomplished? Through the redemption that is in 
Jesus Christ. It is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show what? God's righteousness. So God put in our stead Christ. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus died as our substitute so that we sinners, criminals, enemies of God could be justified. In God who sent his son to the cross, Jesus willingly obeyed, laying his life down to the, for the will of the Father so that the righteousness of God would be seen, that the righteousness of God would be demonstrated, and that God would be the just, he is the just judge, and he is also the justifier who sent his son. A judge on earth can't do that but the judge of all the earth can. And he has sent his perfect son for that all of those who receive by faith the gospel, this good news, like the criminal that day, can be saved. And all of that happened at the cross. And in this morning's passage, it opens up for us the details of, of how our justification was accomplished. All of these things, they, they're, they're huge. Right? We, we said last week that the, that the cross is the, 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 the central part of, of Christianity. It's the, the, the heart of Christianity. It's the heart of the, of, of the gospel. It's what we believe. It's the, the aim of what we share and what we do. It's our, it's our evangelism. It's what we hold dear. It's our, it is our assurance. So how do we know that we can be assured then? Because of Christ and what he has done and what he has accomplished. And this is where we find our confidence and our assurance before God, a holy and righteous judge in Christ alone, in the person and the work of Christ by grace alone, through faith alone. At the cross, it was all accomplished. And in our passage today, we're going to unpack three different places where Jesus achieved, achieved our salvation at the cross. Let's look at verse 44, and let's read this. Verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw that had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled before this spectacle, when when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. 
This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. The first thing that we must see here at the cross is one of the things I've began with, and that is at the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. That was due towards sinners. So the the just judgment of the wrath of God that was towards sinners, Jesus absorbed in himself on the cross. In verse 44, it tells us that that there was darkness that came over the whole land. You see that there? Darkness came over the whole land. The the sun went dark for, for three hours between noon and 3 p.m. So at the, 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 the middle of the day, at the, the height of the day, where the sun is at its peak and supposed to be at its brightest, there was complete darkness for those three hours. Why darkness? Why would God send darkness in this time? Well, the darkness represents something very important that was happening on the cross. It wasn't just a sign of, of evil having its reign. It wasn't just a sign of, of the things that uh, wicked men were doing. But in that darkness for those three horrific hours, that darkness is a sign to us that the judgment of God has come. That the judgment of God has come. And Luke is telling us that in this darkness of the judgment of God, Jesus Christ is absorbing God's righteous judgment against sin on the cross. And how do we know this? We know this because of the scriptures tell us this. We can go to many places throughout the scriptures that talks about darkness. But in each of them, it's, they all speak of judgment. They all speak of, uh, of judgment. One of the most notable ones is in Exodus chapter 10, when, when the Lord sent his plagues over Egypt as a sign of what? His judgment over the whole land of Egypt for their idolatry, for their arrogance and their wickedness toward God's people and toward God himself. Pharaoh thought he was God. And in one of those plagues, God sent darkness over the whole land. In Amos, poor, reluctant prophet Amos, he prophesied about darkness. A darkness that would come. A darkness that would come over the land in the day of the Lord, on the day of the Lord, which is the judgment of God. In Amos chapter 8, verse 9 and 10, it says, And on that day, the day of the Lord, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. 
Amos chapter 8 was about God's, God bringing judgment upon his people for their evil deeds, for their wickedness, for them forgetting the covenant that they had with God, for rejecting God. And in Amos chapter 8, in several places throughout the Old Testament, God is telling his people, he's saying, hey, I know your sin. I know you have broken my law. You have turned from me. I know all that you have done and it will come back to you. My judgment is coming and you'll know it's there and know it's here when it is dark, when darkness comes. But did you also notice something else in Amos that happened? He said that he will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentations. Look at verse 48 and back in Luke 23. The crowds, what did they do? They, they returned home beating their breasts. That's, that's, that's mourning. That's, that's lamentations. Doesn't Amos 8 sound a lot like what, what Luke is describing for us? I mean, he even gives us the same hours. But there's one massive difference. One massive difference between Amos 8 and what's happening in Luke 23. Did you notice it? Everyone in Luke 23 that day, the crowds, the centurions, the soldiers, the criminals, they saw the darkness. But Jesus was the only one who experienced the darkness. He's the only one that experienced the the judgment and the wrath of God that day. Why didn't judgment and wrath fall upon the people? His grace, his gift, his mercy, it's his plan. No, judgment fell that day not on the people, but on his son. God sent his son as a substitute for his people. The darkness means to us that the judgment of God towards sin was being absorbed in Jesus Christ that day. When I was a kid, my grandfather gave us all kinds of uh, cool little things like grandfathers do. He loved going to uh, garage sales, and, and one time he brought back from one of his garage sales uh, a, a magnifying glass for my brother and I. And you know when little boys get uh, magnifying glasses, you know what happens to our army men and the poor ants, which I, I shouldn't say poor ants, I hate fire ants, and, and all the brown little leaves that are laying in the yard. There's not one of those that had a chance when we received that, that little magnifying glass when added to the hot Florida sun, nothing stood in our way. It was like a laser beam across the yard. And when you put that piercing white dot that comes through the magnifying glass on almost anything, you could, I know this from experience, you can put your brother's hand there. I was the brother that had his hand there, by the way. And it would burn. And on that day, on the cross, the piercing white hot dot of God's judgment was not on the people, 
but it was directed toward his son. He became sin. He became our sin. Poured out on him. Like an onslaught of waves hitting him over and over. For thousands of years of iniquities and transgressions. All of our lies, all of our hatred, all of our sinful anger, all of our outbursts of anger, all of our murderous thoughts and even murder itself, all of our, our pride and, and, and our lusts, all of these things all poured out on the perfect, spotless, sinless Son of God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see, that day there was far deeper and greater things at work in those black hours. Not just evil, not just wicked men crucifying an innocent good guy. No, at the cross was imputed on the Son of God, our sin. And for our sin, he faced the righteous wrath and judgment of God that was due toward us. And he took it all. I like what, uh, I like what David Platt has said in regards to the cross. He drank the whole cup of the wrath of God. He drank the whole thing, and he set it down, and he said, it is finished. The bitter wrath of God was bore on, the, on Christ. Remember back in Romans 3, that's what, that's what it's all about. That's what we're seeing in Romans 3, being lived out, worked out right there in Luke 23. The darkness is the symbol of the judgment of God upon his son. And it was for our justification. And that his righteousness would be on display. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. No wonder we hear in the other Gospels where Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he is enduring the righteous judgment of God for our sin. Jesus was in complete darkness, in complete separation from the Father. In order for those who believe in him will not be separated. And that we don't have to live in darkness. But as Paul tells us, that he has brought us into marvelous light. And as Peter just told us, so that we would live in, into righteousness. We've been brought into the, into the light. And that we would no longer be separated from the Father. And that those who are in Christ would, would not face the judgment that was definitely deserved by us. But Jesus has absorbed and took in himself the judgment and punishment that was due to us. The wrath of God for our sins. Jesus Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation, brothers and sisters, you've got to know what this word means. 
It means that he satisfied the wrath of God. The wrath that was due to you, due to me, due to the world for all of their sins. To those who are in Christ, our sins have been propitiated. And no longer is the wrath of God toward you or toward me, to those who believe by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And why? Because Jesus has fully absorbed the judgment and the wrath of God on our behalf. What a huge point we see right there. Second, Jesus was absorbing the judgment of God toward and in his death, toward sinners in his death. But also, he has made a way for our acceptance. He has made a way for our acceptance. Back in in verse 45, Luke tells us something amazing that happens. He says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This wasn't just a mere interesting note, a sideline of the news of some destruction to the temple. No. God was making a very theological statement. He was making a huge theological statement in saying that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. You see, up to this point, only the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement could enter into what the curtain in the temple was separating. It was separating the the most holy place, which Almost nobody could get into unless you were the particular chosen priest at the time to go in and offer sacrifices. But nobody could go through the second curtain except for once a year. The high priest could enter into what is called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant stood. And there he would offer blood sacrifices on the mercy seat as a substitute, right? To appease, to substitute for the atonement of sin. For the people. And once a year, only one guy could go in and do that. And this was all according to the Old Covenant. And for thousands of years, this is what they would do. For thousands of years, this is what they do. Off and on, historically. When the temple existed, when it didn't. They would offer their sacrifices over and over and over and over For thousands of years. And this curtain, which was as thick as a man's hand, it was designed by God Himself. Designed by God Himself to protect God's people from His holiness. To protect them, to to block their eyes from the Holy of Holies, the place where God himself would dwell. And on that day, as Jesus died on the cross, this great curtain was torn in two. This is a massive theological thing that the Lord is doing and that the Lord has done. And he is telling us that something huge has changed. As the old covenant has passed and the new covenant has come. 
And it has come through the sacrifice of His Son. And that is this. That through Jesus and through His sacrifice, He has made a way for forgiven sinners to be in the presence of God. Wow, is that amazing news. Such good news. The the way was now open. Not through a curtain, not just for, for, for one man to enter in, but now that curtain has been torn. No longer is it a curtain with many sacrifices, but now it has come through one sacrifice. And in Christ, He has made a way for our acceptance to be in the presence of God. And we receive that once again by His grace through faith. So because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ has made the perfect and final payment for sin, we now can come into the presence of God. You know, the book of Hebrews makes this very point. And, and, and it makes a very important point because there's these Jewish Christians who need to have their assurance built upon the person and work of Christ and not upon their Judaism, which is about going and offering sacrifices. And they needed to hear that the sacrifices have been complete. You have now been brought near into the presence of God. A priest. And here's what he says. He says in Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith of our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience that our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus, that last perfect sacrifice offered of himself. Now we have been brought near. We have confidence to draw near into the holy places by by the blood of goats, by the blood of bulls. No, by the blood of Jesus. And he opened for us that way through himself. Now, we all needed to be brought near. We all needed to be brought back into the presence of God. Because ever since the Garden of Eden, when when Adam and Eve sinned, they were what? Cast out of the garden, out of the presence of God. There was a break in our relationship with the Lord because of sin. And there's nothing that Adam and Eve or anyone else could do to draw themselves closer to God on on their own. I mean, we see that over and over throughout the Old Testament, us trying to achieve that. And never could they ever do it. And the point was, God was going to send someone, a rescuer, a redeemer, who would come and make our way. And it was at the cross where he accomplished and opened the way back into fellowship with 
God in him. Again, how else does the criminal have assurance that he will be with him today in paradise? Because through that one perfect final sacrifice on the cross, Jesus has accomplished his acceptance. He has accomplished our acceptance that we now can enjoy that communion with him, that fellowship with him, to be near him, to be adopted by him, to be sons. We understand what this means for for us Christians, for you, if you are a Christian. Do you you understand what what this means? It means we no longer live in fear. We, we no longer live in, in fear of, of, of wrath of God. Because we have been brought near by his, into, his, into his presence. It has opened a way. Too often, I think, we believe there's still a curtain. Too often, do we, we, we live as if there's still a curtain that's protecting us. That there's this fear of being rejected as if he doesn't know your sin. Or this fear that we're going to be turned away because of our failures. And yet what this tells us, what God is showing this in the theological significance of the cross and the tearing of the curtain in two is that Jesus has made a way for sinners. Hallelujah. What a Savior. That's why we sing that. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner places behind the curtain. In Christ. Lastly, I want you to see that Jesus died our death. We've already been talking a lot about that. But Jesus has died, died our death. In verse 46, we see Jesus' last action. And we hear his last prayer in Luke's gospel. It says, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Do you see how Jesus makes his last prayer? How he how Luke describes for us Jesus' last prayer? It's not quiet. It's not a whisper like someone who's, who's taking his last breaths. But rather, he calls out with a loud voice. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason why Jesus is crying out with a loud voice. This, this prayer, this strong prayer of authority. It's because he is telling everyone his authority and his willingness that he is laying down his life for us. 
that he's laying down his life for us. You see, that's what he's saying. No one takes his life from him. No one takes my my life from me. I lay it down willingly. I lay it down willingly. There's there's no authority on on this earth. There's no evil. There's no... Uh, demon that can take my life from me. But he willingly is giving it up. He is dying that death willingly for us. And he speaks it loudly because Jesus is even in control on the cross. But did you notice what he prayed as well? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That sounds like something we hear at funerals. Well, because it is. This is like a a funeral that Jesus is giving of himself right here. I'm speaking at my own funeral. And he's making his last declaration. But this line, this prayer, actually comes from Psalm 31, verse 5. We read it this morning. And in Psalm 31, was was all about David praying, praying to God that he would be rescued from death, a sure death. That he would be rescued from his enemies who have encircled him and have come around him. And he's praying, rescue me. Rescue me. But when Jesus prays this, When Jesus, the the, the better David, the the fulfillment of David, the son of David, the son of God, the king of kings, when he prays this at his darkest moment and at the point of death, he prays not in, in a way so that he would be rescued or that he would be redeemed, but rather he prays to his father, trusting his father in the work that he has just completed and is completing, that it will be for the ransom and for the rescue of sinners for others not for his rescue but for our rescue for our redemption for the rescue of sinners and he prayed this trusting his father father into your hands I commit my spirit Jesus breathes his last breath, prays his last prayer, working out redemption. Not for his rescue, but for our rescue, because through the cross we can be rescued and we can be redeemed. He is willingly laying down his life as a ransom and to rescue us. John chapter 10 takes us right to this. Jesus, Jesus is talk, talks about this when he talks about the, that he is the, the good shepherd. And he knew what, the, what was expected exactly of the good shepherd and what he has come and what he was sent here to do. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. 
Verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Listen to this, verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And this charge I have received from my father. Jesus died our death willingly. Willingly and authoritatively for our sins. For the sheep that have gone astray because he is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd that is drawing us back in into his presence, that we would be forgiven. He was our substitute, dying our death, so that we would not face our judgment. But he has given us his victory. What's amazing here in this passage as well is not just the details of Jesus' death, but also the, the reactions we, we, get, we get three reactions after Jesus breathes his last. And I, I think these are so helpful for us when we, when we put the cross together and the story of the cross and, and, and what it means. And, and first there was this centurion. He's a, he's a Roman soldier, but he's not just a soldier, he's an officer. He was the, probably the, the leader of, in charge of all the Roman soldiers that were there that day. He was the guy in charge to make sure that these three guys would be executed on the cross and done exactly the way that Rome wanted it to be done. And is there any surprise to us who have been walking through Luke for the last couple of weeks? Is there any surprise to us that we hear his reaction like this? To look what he says. What does he say? He says, certainly this man was innocent. I mean, that, that should be no surprise to us. We've, we've seen time and time again that, that people have said, Jesus is innocent. And, and actually, it was pagan Gentiles. It was Pontius Pilate. Mark even tells us that this centurion confesses that Jesus truly was the Son of God. Luke tells us that he was praising God, saying these things. And why do we see this? Because this is evidence that this is true. That it just wasn't another guy who died on the cross as an innocent man. That he was, innocent, that he was just an innocent good guy, like so many wimpy liberals call it. No, it was God punishing his son on our behalf. And the centurion sees it. And he clearly sees that it's the son of God and the innocence of the man who's dying on the cross. And he praises God. Educated morons can't see this. But here's this guy that sees it. And he praises God for it. Now, we, we don't know if this guy comes to faith or not, but I do know this. Luke likes to tell stories of centurions who come to faith. Acts chapter 10. Don't know if it's the same guy. Not saying it. But something was happening there. Evidence is that this is true. 
And second, there's the crowds. There's the onlookers who gathered to watch the spectacle. What was their reaction? We, we already said it. Verse 48. They, they walked away after Jesus died doing what? Beating their breasts. Again, that was a, that's a sign of their sorrow. Not just because another man died, but, but their sorrow of mourning, of regret, of their own guilt, of their own guilt on themselves. Because I think in some way that they saw the innocence of Jesus too, just like the centurion did. And they realized that an innocent man has clearly just been put to death. A sense of guilt that came over them. And maybe, maybe it was that guilt. A spark from the cross that the Holy Spirit used in drawing thousands just 50 days later, 52 days later, at the day of Pentecost. Because when Peter stands up to preach, he tells them, you're guilty. You did this. But it was God who delivered him up. But it was God who would deliver him up. And maybe this guilt is what drew them in. Brothers and sisters, when we see the cross, I think overwhelmingly we should see our guilt. The guilt of our sin. That we should be the ones who died that death that deserved eternal damnation and the wrath of God poured upon us. But also the good news is is this, is the cross doesn't just leave us in that guilt, but it's a reminder as well of the expiation of our guilt, that our guilt was removed upon us and put upon Christ. So as Christians, we do remind ourselves that we are sinners. We know we're sinners. We We should be the first ones to admit it. However, we do not walk in the guilt of our sin as if it's our identity, as if it's who we are, because it's not. The cross reminds us of our guilt, but we no longer remain there. Now, if you are not in Christ, then the cross is heaping your guilt upon you. But it's also pointing you to the hope of grace and mercy that is found in Christ and in him alone. Not in ourselves, not in anything else. And that Christ is the only hope. And I think that's the third area, the third group. We see the disciples there. The disciples and the women, the, 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 the acquaintances. And they were standing far at a, at a distance from the cross. They were keeping their distance. They were probably afraid what was happening. But I think this is significant for us. Because it's in Christ alone. There was no help from the disciples. There was no help from the women as great as they are. And God bless them for their faithfulness. But our salvation is not in the disciples. Our salvation is not in Mary. Our salvation is not in a pastor or the elders or the church or your family or your friends or your grandparents. Your salvation does not go there. They're at the distance. But at the cross is Christ. And our salvation is in him alone. Our salvation is in him alone. Because what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. A bitter, dark day, but in his death, in his death, he has accomplished what we could not do. And by his grace, through faith, we now can draw near. The gospel doesn't leave us separated. It doesn't leave us far away like the disciples were that day or the morning crowd walking away, beating their breasts. But the cross draws us in because we remember that Jesus took our place and he bore our judgment and our wrath. He took our shame. He took our guilt and it was nailed to the cross. And he accomplished our acceptance. And he died our death. So listen. There's no more try harder, do better, or be good enough. Because the cross simply, plainly, and squarely in our faces says that you can't. You can't justify yourself. But the cross says that Christ has accomplished, that Christ has brought about our justification and has brought about our fellowship with him. The reconciling us to God and through each other has all been achieved and accomplished at the cross. So what does the death of Jesus, the cross, say to you this morning? Is it an answer of faith? Is it of complete reliance on him alone for your salvation? Is it a deeper assurance of your salvation because of what he has accomplished? Is it a deeper and wider confidence in him? Do you love him more? Do you want to praise him more? Do you desire him more? The death of Christ on the cross is for our salvation. By his grace, through faith, in Christ alone, that no one can boast except we boast only in the cross. We will be those weirdos that boast only in the cross because it is at the place of the cross where Jesus died But we have salvation, reconciliation, peace with God, and that we have been adopted because of the perfect word of Christ and the redemption of his blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the work of Christ and the work of the gospel. Oh, the cross, let it be the center of our hearts and our minds, Lord, when we always remember what Christ has done on the cross. Lord, would you be with us as we respond now? Lord, would you lead us that we would be encouraging to one another and speak truthfully with one another in these things. We boast only in you, in Christ alone. Amen.